Hello. It's really good to be back at church again. I was on vacation for a few weeks. In fact, it was when I was driving home. It hit me how much I love you. I love being at this church. I love the people of this church. You're some of my best friends I've ever had. So it was exciting to come back and be here again. I'm excited to be able to preach to you today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 19. But before I do that, I want I, one of the reasons I was so excited to come back is because of this church is doing what we're supposed to be doing, trying to reach people for Christ and make disciples. And I just got a list. I had to list out a few things. And I know I didn't even cover them all. But since the COVID virus started and we, we've had to go everything online, you've been watching this online every week. That's one of the things we've been doing. Coming up in the next week, we're going to be starting uh, our seniors ministry meeting again outdoors, the first one we've had since the COVID virus started. We did camp day on Wednesday. We did uh, we give vegetables away at our outdoor service, so people bring them to neighbors and make friends there to maybe invite them to church or introduce them to the Lord. We had game night for the youth. Youth ministry has been going like crazy. Game night, or excuse me, uh, night games was happening, which was fantastic. Youth group TV went on for weeks and weeks. Their youth department did an incredible job there. We've had community nights and family nights with movies. We've got another one coming up. We got uh, community groups, our small group ministries, been meeting all the time online, many of them even in person and stuff. We have Marriage Alpha coming up this fall, which is on Friday nights, seven Friday nights. That's going to be exciting where literally you watch stuff online and you have a time to ask and talk and discuss with your own uh, spouse right at your home. We have regular Alpha starting up this fall. We had Alpha during the COVID virus, which went tremendously. We have a depression group that started before uh, the COVID virus, but continued through the COVID virus. Some of them meeting on in, in, in homes or on sites as well as online. We have, because there's such a deep need in that area, depression, excuse me, a, a baptism is coming up at the camp in September. Service project, we did a service project to Urban Promise, more than one, donated huge amounts of food to different ministries around here. We've been doing outdoor services, online services, outdoor services for weeks. If you haven't come, you got to come and check it out. It's really fun. Just wear a mask, bring a chair. And we'll be doing indoor services probably when it gets cold. We'll have to. And we're starting to move that direction, prepare for that in October, November. So I'm pretty excited about the fall. Oh, I forgot a few things like women's ministry, book club meetings, lots of new ones started. Helping Hands Grief Ministries continue to meet online. They're meeting, starting to think about meeting in person. Band of Brothers, men's ministry. I even spoke there online. It's incredible. I'm so excited and even proud of what God's doing here because we're still doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is make disciples for Christ. And so what I'd like to do before I even start is pray with you about what God's doing among us and that God will continue to do. Because I really believe in the fall and the winter, we're going to see a huge harvest of people coming to Christ as we come back to church. Let me pray with you. Lord, I thank you for what you've been doing among us. Your Holy Spirit has not been just sitting around in our hearts. Uh, you've been working in our hearts in a major way. I think the darkness of the COVID virus, the de depression and the, the seclusion of everybody is creating an environment that's going to be more ripe for the gospel than ever before. And people are going to be ready to trust God, knowing that life does, is uncertain and there's no certainty and there's no truth without the truth of the gospel. And so, Lord, I'm excited to be able to preach John chapter 19 today and what the gospel of the cross really means. And I pray you'll help everyone listening to me really comprehend what we need to comprehend to really believe you for the future, our own lives, for this country, for our church, for the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. 
Amen. Okay, what I want to do right now is set up the reading of chapter 19 of John for you. I have a friend named Max McLean. He's an actor up in, in New York City, and he's a strong, dedicated Christian, and he is going to, he's a professional reader. I want him to read John 19 for you. I want you to listen to this. It's all about the cross. Let me set it up. Here's what happened in chapter 18. As you remember, Judas betrayed Jesus. So Jesus was taken by the Jewish authorities and then handed over to the Roman authorities. And the governor, whose name was Pilate, was now given Jesus. And he's got some other prisoners there too. And he's, it's the custom to release one of the prisoners during this time. And he was asking them if he should release Barabbas or release Jesus to freedom. You know, they just get off, off the hook. And they say, no, we don't, we don't want Jesus to be released. We want Barabbas to be released. And right then, that's where chapter 19 starts. So listen to this. In fact, would you just close your eyes and imagine the scene where Jesus is being talked to and the people are being talked to by this man, Pilate. And get the scene of what happens when he's put on the cross, dies, and buries. Chapter 19 of John. Here you go. John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! 
Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, They divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look 
on the one they had pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay, after, you, after you've heard all that, a question might come to your mind, as it comes to my mind, okay, like, so what? What does this mean? Is this just a story, a sad story of someone unjustly dying, Jesus? Well, that's happened many times. What, what is this supposed to mean? Well, God in his infinite understanding and mercy toward us has supplied us with four imageries in the rest of the New Testament that interpret this incident for us that you just heard read to help us comprehend the depths and the widths and the heights of what happened here. Jesus dying on the cross. What does this mean for us? Now, could it be that your lack of faith is from a lack of comprehension? Could it be that people don't understand what this means so they don't believe what it means? Yes, yes, yes. That's not always the case. But that is sometimes the case, and maybe even the case with you. You struggle with doubts, you struggle with fears, you struggle with anxiety, you don't have the faith you should have, and you want to grow in your faith. Well, one of the sure ways to grow in your faith is through comprehension. And the New Testament has given us four different imageries to help us comprehend what happened there. I put them down in your outline. One is the temple imagery, the courtroom imagery, the marketplace imagery, and the battlefield imagery. These are the four imageries God's given us. Now, people approach this. You see, you need to comprehend, then you need to believe. Two steps, right? Comprehend and then believe what you've comprehended. People, there's four different stages people come at, and I, I would think number one would be some people comprehend what the cross means of Jesus dying in our place, and they take steps to believe it. Second group of people would be some people comprehend, but they decide not to believe it. They don't take it personally. They don't apply it to their life. There's a third group, which I think applies to a lot of Christians. There's some who don't really comprehend what it means, but they still try and believe. Believe somehow in Jesus helping them improve their life or something. Many people fall into that category, and the most popular category is the last one. Some don't comprehend it, and they don't even try to believe. So whatever category you find yourself in, I'm trying to do two things today, help you comprehend and help you believe. I put down in the big idea of the sermon, comprehending and believing in what Jesus did on the cross changes your life, because it really does. If you really comprehend what happened, it changes your life like it has for me and so many multitudes of others, and maybe even you. Because you began to comprehend it and then believe it. There's a, a famous theologian. I was reading a book by him. His, his name is Knox Chamblin. He said, the cross of Christ is like a, a diamond. 
and diamond has many facets and and light ricochets and 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 flashes off of a diamond in different ways as you turn it and he says it's the same with the cross as you investigate or look at it different ways so we're going to look at four different ways right now first one is the temple the temple imagery is talked about several times in the new testament it's talking about the sacrificial system and this is what you need to understand jesus did not die for himself. Jesus died for other people. That's just a basic thing to understand. So this whole story we just heard read about Jesus dying on the cross is really talking about how Jesus died on the cross for somebody else, not for himself, because even as Pilate mentioned, he was without guilt. So it's very similar to the sacrificial system where an innocent uh, animal was taken and put on the sacrifice for people's sins in the temple altar in the same way Jesus is being put on the cross as a sacrifice for us. It's it, it, This is called atonement. And theologians call it substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus substituted for you and me as the sacrifice for our sins, not for his own sins, but for our sins so that we could be righteous in God's eyes. Remember when the passage we just had read, the people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. That, that's what we see in John 19 referring to this idea. Jesus was crucified, slaughtered for us. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Or in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our transgressions our trespasses, I should say, and, and raised for our justification. Notice the words us and our. What the passages are trying to relate is that he died in our place. He, Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for us, our and us being used. The word expiation means Jesus' blood covers our sins. That's a term used in the New Testament. Another term is propitiation means that the wrath of God is satisfied by Jesus dying in our place as a sacrifice. That's the key idea. Substitution, atonement. I remember when I first became a believer when I was 18 years old and the first week of my salvation was a pretty powerful week in my own heart and mind because I began to comprehend the idea that Jesus took my place and sacrificed for my sins. And I, I was in, in, a, in a very primitive way beginning to understand the sacrifice idea, the atonement idea. And I felt so free. So, so like, wow, my sins are forgiven. I can't believe they're, they're covered, expiated by the blood of Jesus. I can't believe God's not mad at me anymore. No, because Jesus, the wrath of God was poured on Jesus, not on me for what things I had done. And I did a lot of despicable things in my high school days and so excited God had forgiven me for all my sins my whole life. But it was a year later that someone invited me to a youth thing down in Minneapolis. I grew up in Minnesota. And we went to this youth event, and there was a speaker on the stage, and he's talking about how we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. And he said, it'll be like a big screen. And on the screen, all your life will be put before everybody, and they'll see all the sins you did. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was going to happen. He goes, yes, the Bible predicts there's going to be a judgment. He says, but if you're a believer in Christ, the blood of Jesus covers your sin. It's expiated. The wrath of God's gone. No, it's not even remembered. You're forgiven. Wow. 
You see, forgiveness, even that idea comes from the idea of the sacrificial system. The blood of the animal covered the sins of the people, forgiven. And, and I remember walking out of that meeting, uh, you know, I was like 19 years old, and I just could not believe that all my sins were covered. Literally, I'm paid for, I'm cared for because of Jesus' sacrifice. It was an unbelievable joy. And it recurs as we start to remember more and more and comprehend what the cross was about. That's the first imagery, the temple. The second imagery is the courtroom. In Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 24 and 25, it reads like this. Uh, 23 and 24, I should say. It reads like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that's the key word there, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, justified. That's the key word. You see, all of us stand in the courtroom of heaven before God, like that speaker was saying that one night I just referred to years ago. And, and, and we'll stand in that courtroom judged for all of our sins. But in the courtroom of God, Jesus Christ paid the penalty to the point where I can be justified, just like I never even did it. I'm declared righteous in God's eyes, which is what justification really means. That is a, a, a courtroom term. I'm, I'm free of the guilt. See, because all of us stand before God, guilty, guilty as charged, like we're guilty, and we got no leg to stand on. We have no defense. But Jesus came to our defense. God gave his son to justify us, to make us righteous in God's eyes. Um, you see, we're justified sinners because of the cross, even though we deserve far less because we're guilty. The world looks at Jesus like he's weak. That's why he went to the cross. He was weak and he led weakly. He wasn't strong enough to be able to endure and handle it. When the truth is, we're the ones that are weak. Jesus was the one that was strong. He paid our debt. We find this in, in Rome, in, um, John chapter 19, we read when Pilate was talking to the people and they wanted to crucify him. He says, I find no guilt in Jesus. I find no guilt, which is why he could take on your guilt and my guilt because he had none. I've only been in the courtroom twice. Uh, I was in for two of my grandchildren's adoptions. I've had, I have uh, nine grandkids. I have two of them that are adopted boys. And so I was in the Camden court down in Camden, New Jersey, twice for these things. And it was interesting because the family court deals with a lot of nasty family problems. And you could see the joy uh, on the bailiff's face. You could see the joy on the judge's face when they see this wonderful family coming in, my daughter and her husband, and these cute kids she's got, and they're going to adopt this little boy. And she's talking about it and asking questions of them about what they're going to do and what's happened and talking to the people, giving up for adoption, putting it together. It, it, it was joyful. And then when the, the, the gavel is dropped and she declares that it's justified, that th these parents have fully adopted. Did you, did you know the word adoption is a courtroom is a word as well? And so they're adopted into the family of the Pearsons, fully adopted, just as much a child of, of them, them as the regular born children, which they've got two of. And I remember the joy in the whole courtroom that broke out as we're taking pictures and we're hugging each other. It's like the judge didn't want us to leave. This was so much fun compared with some of the nasty things she had to deal with.
Wow. That's like you and me. We're adopted into the family of God. It's just as if we were always children of God, brought back into the family of God, and we're invited in. We are justified, just as if we'd never sinned. That's the courtroom experience that you need to understand happened when Jesus died on the cross. The third imagery the Bible gives us is the imagery of the marketplace. All of us who have sinned, the Bible says, are in bondage to sin. And it's like the old Bob Dylan song when he says, everybody needs to serve somebody. Yes, we do. The tendency in the human race from Adam and Eve on is to follow our sinful nature. We're born into sin. We can't help it. We think this way. We think wrongly. We feel wrongly. We, we, ad- we, we adopt practices that are wrong. And in the book of Timothy, that's the passage I wanted to show you. In the book of Timothy, we read these words. Starting with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 reads like this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, key word, ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He's a ransom. The ransom price has been paid. There's another passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, which says, you've been bought with a price. Who bought me? Well, Jesus on the cross bought me out of slavery to sin so that I could be made righteous in God's eyes. I've been bought out of that slavery, which is the basis for even my changed life as a Christian and being set free from sins in my own life, addictive patterns and things in my life. I can be set free because of the cross. The cross did that. It bought me out of the slavery I was in to sin so that I don't pay the price and go to hell. I can go to heaven because I've been bought and paid for by Jesus dying for my sins. That's the imagery given to us. Jesus' death is the ransom price that was paid. So your selfishness, paid for. Your pride, your false pride, your arrogance or boasting, paid for. Your sexual sins of whatever kind, paid for, paid for. No more guilt, no more shame. Greed, paid for. Addiction, paid for. And I could go on and on, right? We have a lot of them. You know, the marketplace imagery in, in, in the it, John 19 passage we read is reflected in their bartering for even his garments. There was still a marketplace right there at the foot of the cross. One time years ago, I, I went to Senegal. Senegal is in West Africa. It's the westernmost part of Africa. And it was the, like, center the hub of the slave trade back in the 1800s. And where black people in Africa would go out and, and, and grab hold, capture other African American people and bring them to the coast in Senegal. And there's this island there where they literally have it. It's still, uh, some of the uh, structures are still there where they would put hundreds of slaves in just a little room. I mean, a 15 or 20 by 20 foot room, put 50 or 100, they'd all have to stand up there, treat them like cattle. 
And I got to go to this place because my brother-in-law was a missionary in Senegal and he could speak French. And there were, there's a guide there interpreting things for us and telling us what happened and how the slave boats would pull up from, from Europe or the slave boats from America would pull up and they'd usher them on like cattle. And, and some of them would die as they went overseas. No one really cared. They treated them not like humans. And you start entering into the thoughts and the feelings of what it must have been like to be a slave. It brings tears to your eyes and breaks your heart. And the truth is, guys, we were all slaves to sin. All of us sold into bondage, the Bible tells us. And the only way out to our certain death and certain destruction was what? Jesus. So the whole imagery of bond slave, of Jesus dying in our place to pay our debt, ransom us out of slavery, is a beautiful imagery. I saw it so clearly when I was synagogue thinking, wow, the spiritual application is so powerful that we could be bought out of slavery to sin. Fourthly, now here's the last one, the battlefield imagery. And all human beings, according to scripture, are born enemies of God. Yep. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners sold into slavery. In fact, uh, that's one of the passages I wanted to share with you is, is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned to fall short of the glory of God. And right before that, he said, no, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us are born in the place of being in contention or friction with God because we're sinners and he's holy, he's righteous. There's no way we can be right with him. We're like in a battle. That's the battlefield imagery with God himself. And we're destined to lose. But by Jesus dying on the cross, he, he actually made it possible for us to have what they call reconciliation or peace with God. It's a battlefield term. Let me show you another passage, one of my favorite ones. It's in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. At the end, starting with verse 19. Let me read it to you. This is a key passage. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, making peace. That's what reconciliation with the rest of the world. Instead of being enemies with the world, he wanted to make peace with the world through Jesus. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation all through Christ. That's how we get peace with God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, this is the key verse. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that substitutionary atonement idea again. Here's the idea of battlefield again. He fought the battle for you. He paid the price for you. For our sakes, he substituted. Substitutionary atonement's there too. It's When we talk about being lost or being saved, these are battlefield terms. You're lost in the battle for your own soul or you're, you're saved in the battle for your own soul. Jesus can save you in the battle for your own life. Otherwise, you're lost in the battle. Who can beat God? Nobody. Now, where's the battlefield imagery in John chapter 19, which we just read? Well, the battlefield imagery is where they took the spear and they shoved it through Jesus' side. Remember, the soldiers did that and blood and water came out, which meant he was certainly dead. That's the battlefield imagery in John 19. I've never been on a battlefield. I know some who I'm speaking to now probably have been. But I did meet some warriors before. I've met some warriors from Vietnam or World War II or things like that. But I remember meeting a 
Adani tribesmen in Indonesia, the most primitive place I've ever been in my life. I went with a group of pastors to Indonesia. We went around to different places, but we flew into a place in the Baling Valley where the people look different, act different, and they're extremely primitive. I mean, literally grass huts and grass skirts and half naked running around, hunting still with spears and arrows and collecting animals and vegetables. The whole thing, it just was unbelievable. Very, very primitive. The most primitive place I've ever been. Literally even mud huts. And there was a pastor's conference going on in this big village we went to. And missionaries have been there since the 1950s and literally seen thousands and thousands of people come to Christ. Primitive people, understanding, comprehending what I'm talking to you about. And this one lady named Miss Sunda, she introduced me to, she put her arm around this man who's even smaller than her. Most of the people there are smaller, dark skin, smaller, and and just incredible shape from going up and down these huge mountains, barefoot. Unbelievable what they do. And she says, I want you to meet Whiskers. And next to her stood this man who had, like I said, dark skin, but a big white beard and a smile on his face that I will never forget. It was contagious. Just joy reeked out. I didn't know a word he said unless she translated it to me. She says, I want you to meet Whiskers. He was a Donnie warrior in his tribe. He's literally killed many, many people. And had many people in his family killed by warring tribes. Before we got here as missionaries, all these tribes went out every week and, and often protected their land by killing other warriors from other tribes. And she said, but he began to understand the gospel, that Jesus can make peace with God because they've, they felt they needed to sacrifice and offer human sacrifices even to, to, to different gods. And she said, but he began to understand the, the idea that Jesus took his place, paid for his sins, and no more sacrifice needed to be made. Jesus was the ultimate. Jesus won the victory. He began to comprehend it more and more and put his belief in it more and more. So much so that Whiskers decided, okay, I'm one of the senior people around here. I'm going to go tell that warring tribe who's killed some of my relatives, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. And I'm going to go tell them because I've killed some of them about the gospel. He took off and he didn't return. They sent a group of people out to find him and they found him down by the river with seven poison arrows in him. The poison arrows, one of them should kill you. He had seven of them in. They pulled them all out, brought them back. And by God's grace and the miracle, he lived. He got better. And as soon as he got better and strong enough, what did he do? He went right back to tell those people. And the entire tribe came to Christ. A warring tribe, his enemies. Why did he do this? Because he understood what they need to understand. You can have peace with God. Now, I suggest to you, if a primitive, untrained, uneducated, Donnie tribesman warrior could comprehend this and put his belief in it and see change in his own heart and change in others, why couldn't you? It, it's a decision that needs to be, two questions need to be asked to you today, right now. Do you comprehend this? I think everyone listening to me comprehends enough to put your faith in it. It's just a matter of a decision now. You can comprehend it. Comprehension, one of the ways you can increase your faith, and if you feel you have too small a faith, is to comprehend more. Look at these imageries. Learn from this. It's all in the Bible. I've just been preaching Bible to you. Comprehend more so you can believe more. But as we all know, just comprehending more doesn't mean you'll believe more. 
that's a decision that needs to be made. All I did here today was hopefully help you comprehend more what it means that Jesus died on the cross, what it means for you. The belief is your, that's your part. I, I, I can't force you or tell you or teach you about belief. You have to decide. And so what I'd like to do right now is pray. Because if you can believe this, if you can comprehend it and, and, and understand it, it changes how you see yourself, changes how you see God, changes how you see your spouse, it changes how you see the kids and the church and the country and the world. It changes everything. If you can comprehend the cross and what Jesus did in the cross, because it changes who you are, who, who you are in relationship with God, who you are in relationship with everybody else. Like I said in the beginning, it will change your life if you can comprehend the cross. Can I pray with you about that? Let me pray with you right now. Dear God, we come before you knowing we are just sinners saved by the grace of God, by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. I pray for those who are comprehending this maybe for the first time, that they will now take the step of faith. Comprehension doesn't really change anything, but faith does. So may they now take the step to say, okay, I'm going to believe that for me. I'm going to believe that for my life, for my soul, for my sins. Lord, we've been learning what you revealed in your word about the temple sacrificial system, about the courtroom uh, in heaven, about, about the marketplace that we're bought out of slavery to sin, and about the battlefield, how we're reconciled, we get peace with God. All this happens and much, much more through Jesus dying on the cross. Now we're going to put our faith in it. So whether you're facing problems in your soul, problems in de with depression, problems with your spouse, problems with other people you're in conflict with, it, the cross is the key to overcoming everything. And so I pray, dear God, for everyone listening, that they will be able to apply their faith now to what they comprehend in the cross. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for making a way for us to be saved instead of lost. We put our faith and trust in you. If that's something you did, just in your own heart and mind, say, Amen, Lord, I, that's what I want. I'm going to trust you more because of what I've been learning today. In Jesus' name, amen.
That song is a powerful reminder of some of the things we just begin to comprehend. I encourage you to keep reading the word, keep growing in your faith. Teach your children this. Like I said, if a primitive Donnie tribesman could understand this and apply his faith, certainly your kids could, certainly you could. In, in whatever you're facing in life, let alone your eternal security in Christ.